0: reading from Exodus. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days." So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and your fill of bread in the morning. Because of the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him. What are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked towards the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God." In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of the dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance, as fine as frost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. The word of the Lord.
1: A reading from Philippians. To me, living as Christ, and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that i may share abundantly in your boasting in christ jesus when i come to you again only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or i am absent and hear about you i will know that you are standing firm in one spirit striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The Word of the Lord.
2: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, about three o'clock, he did the same. And About five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last, then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, these aren't worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first, And the first will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. I better start out telling you I don't like the story at all. <laughs> I just really don't care for it. But um, I, I did get, I think, a worthwhile sort of readaptation of the story when I was in college. This has been a long time ago, and, and I went in, in southern North Carolina, and so the story was adapted to Georgia. And so the, the way the story went was that this was a peach orchard full of ripe peaches, and the weather forecast said that the next day there would be a hard freeze. And of course that means anything not picked and stored would be lost. And so the orchard owner goes to Home Depot early in the morning (laughs) and finds some day laborers um, and negotiates to pay them sort of a going rate. Now this is in addition to the people who are already at the orchard. Let's not pretend that he has no one working okay, there's, there's regular workers, they just don't have enough work to get the crop in in time. So he goes early in the morning, fills up the truck, and comes back. Around nine o'clock, he sees that even with the addition of the new laborers, they still will not get in the crop. And again, the owner is very concerned at losing anything. So he goes back to Home Depot. This time, there's not even negotiation, and maybe this has happened to you. Quite honestly, sometimes if you drive by a truck, um, people just get in, whether you negotiate or not. Apparently, that's what happens. Uh, Drives them to the vineyard. Does this at noon? Does this again at 3 o'clock? At 5 o'clock, and keep in mind, there's only one hour left, and by the time they get there, what are they really going to do? Clean up the ladders? Sweep? Uh, He does it anyway. He goes and he makes sure that they get every last peach in before the coming freeze. And the orchard owner, of course, is delighted that this happens and is so happy at having braved this challenge against all but impossible odds that out of his exuberance, he pays everybody the same amount, beginning with the last and working to the first. And of course, there's in this rendition of the story, the people get upset because, um, as anybody with the Myers-Briggs letter J knows. <laughs> <laughs> Hint, I have one of those J personalities. Uh, the people who came early in the morning really did work much harder, and unless they worked at a much slower rate than the people who worked at only one hour, probably picked many more peaches, let's just be honest. So they sort of thought at least there would be a high five. I- instead, they just get what they agreed with, and, and there's this they're just bickering, hey, we worked through the heat of the day, and they didn't. And by giving us the same amount of money, It's like you're saying we're worth the same amount to you. And then comes the correction, really, that the whole story was not about ranking the workers, but about saving the fruit. I I think that's helpful, honestly, to keep in mind, because quite honestly, as one of those J people, (laughs) I usually get very wrapped up in the quantity of work, almost... More so than I do in the quality of what the work is meant to do. That is to preserve and save the lives of others, be they fruit or human beings. Uh, helpful, helpful corrective. It's funny that sort of I know this principle, but every time I go on a mission trip, whether it's youth or adults or mixed, I have to relearn this lesson. <laughs> Because after all, I want our group to be the one that did the most stuff. Because by doing the most stuff, we've proved how hardworking we are, how much we could quantitatively change somebody's life in just a week, and isn't that what it's all about? I've mentioned this story to you. I'm going to recycle an old story and then give you a new one as well. One time I was in Appalachia, and we were tasked, I think, with just painting this lady's trailer. And, and we did, but, but that wasn't going to be enough for me. So we decided instead we would also fix her retaining wall and redo her kitchen cabinets. And I think there's something else we did. <laughs> we did do this, I want you to know. And, um, and, and, and because uh, I had this great idea, it was going to be that we could cover the surface of her counters with tile which was going to be great, and I'd done that before. The only problem was I didn't have a wet saw, and it turns out it's very difficult to cut a tile without a wet saw. Trust me, you can use a masonry uh, blade on a skill saw. That does not work well. You can pour water on the tile while you use a masonry blade on a skill saw. That also does not work very well beyond one tile. Trust me, I've done that. Um, So here I was with this great idea, but then tiles that didn't fit. So the only way I was going to cover this was by breaking the tiles up with a hammer and then making a creative mosaic. (laughs) And I told this to the homeowner, this will be great, it'll be a mosaic. Really what I was thinking is this is the only way I'm going to cover that. Um, and, And the homeowner said to me, well just do whatever you do in your own home. In my own home, I would rent a tile (laughs) saw. In my own home, I might go to Home Depot for one of those laborers uh, to operate the tile saw that I rented. Um, However, that's not in the budget. So so I I sort of said very coyly, oh yes, this will be great. And that was when I realized, of course, that the lady actually didn't even care about her kitchen countertops one bit. She didn't. What she cared about was somebody showing her the dignity that she rarely in her life had ever received somebody stopping and saying, I will give you the same criterion of care and love that I would bother giving myself. My students saw through it. Uh, It took me several weeks (laughs) to process that that was what the encounter was about. See, I got so wrapped up in the picking that I forgot what the picking was for. The, the, The picking was to save somebody's life qualitatively. I just cared about quantity. It's a helpful story, I think, for us to hear in the wake of a natural disaster, because I'll just tell you, it becomes very easy for me and other J people to think about quantities of work. And this may be wrong, but I actually think it's right. What I tell every labor group is that the work is really just an excuse. It's an excuse to meet somebody you otherwise would never meet, and in so doing, to enrich both of your lives. Work really provides a great conduit to do it, but having missed the dignity of the human being, regardless of the quantity of work we do, I'm afraid we missed the point. So told that way, I think the story is really, really helpful. I still don't like it, (laughs) because after all, as I told you, I'm one of those J people. And what that means is that when I sat with my high school class to receive my diploma, I looked to my left and I looked to my right and I realized we were all getting the same paper. Now, I got two yellow cords I got to wear at graduation, but my paper doesn't have those marks, and darn it, I worked way harder than the rest of those people. Then I got to college, and I met people, and I thought, how did you get out of middle school? What are you doing in college? And what do you know on graduation day, they got a similar paper to mine, and we didn't even get the cords at my college. And my diploma does not have two yellow marks on it. I want you to know. Then I got to seminary (laughs) and I looked to my right and my left and there were people that I discerned should not have got out of elementary school and here we were getting ready to receive the same paper. Not only that, there were people to my right and my left who sort of um, bristled at the whole seminary experience. They'd even said from the first day, well, we're just here to get our preaching certificate because we already know everything we need to know. I have a hard time with that. I'm pretty sure many of us do, which is why we invented the fantasy that I grew up with in church called Jewels and Your Heavenly Crown. You ever heard of this fantasy? It is so lovely. It is a fantasy we indoctrinate our youth in because we say every time you do a good thing it's a jewel in your heavenly crown and after all i don't want to be walking around in heaven with only one jewel in my crown i want to have a crown that's so jewel studded that other people know that it was only by the grace of god that they got there and (laughs) yeah really want them to learn God's grace in my heavenly crown that's the real reason I want them uh, now, now listen I don't expect to have any more jewels than Mother Teresa I don't need to win I just you know want to be in the top one so, percent so, so so this is extremely appealing to me and I can tell many of you are familiar with this tradition that it is absolutely the opposite of the description in the Bible and maybe you've also heard that there are tears in heaven ranging from the seventh one to the first one. It's, it's delightful and of course it's, it's very human and petty and completely wrong. The crown business shows up in the Bible. It shows up in the book of Revelation. And the saints there of course receive a heavenly crown. did not say anything about jewels. Of course the first thing the saints do when they get their crown is take it off and throw it at the feet of Jesus. Because everybody in heaven is exactly the same and that's the point. Darn it, (laughs) because I was thinking I got a couple diamonds recently. (sighs) This is why I really don't like the story, because I really, really want the quantity and the intensity of the work to be valued by God in such a way that it sets me apart from other people. Of course, what the parable is saying, I think, is that the quantity and the intensity of the work is extremely valued by God precisely because it saves the lives of other people, but that's what it was for, just really that. I know it's high and holy, I just don't like it because <laughs> I want more self-aggrandizement. And, and that's why when you hear the story in Exodus, this is a story about people who are led out into the desert where, what do you know, there's nothing to eat or drink, and they start complaining. There's another version of the story that comes in the book of Numbers, and I'd like to tell you that I, this is going to out how petty I am as a person, I really like the version in Numbers better, because in Numbers, the people complain. They say, oh God, we're starving. Oh God, we're dying. Moses, why did you do this to us? We could have lived in Egypt. Of course, I grew up, you're not supposed to complain to God. And in Numbers, you're not supposed to complain to God because God sends the quail and drowns people in them. And then God sends the bread, and while people are chewing it, God just randomly starts killing them because you're not supposed to complain to God. Now, see, I knew that, and they didn't, and that's why I want them to suffer. Um, (laughs) This story, though, is another one of those things that just challenges, you know... (sighs) The decorum we're all supposed to have, you know, the decorum like when you cross yourself and when you genuflex, surely that matters to God, right? Or, or not. See, the story in Exodus seems to say no. The story in Exodus suggests that when people are like infants, and they're hungry, and they have no resources, when manna comes, and by the way, I could have told those people what manna was, because I've read the story. I can't believe they didn't know what manna was when they'd only seen it for the first time ever in the history of the world, because I know what it is. Um, They complain, and what does God do? Treats them like a newborn and says, oh, you're crying because you're hungry. Let me take care of you. We get that response when we're dealing with a newborn. We struggle with that response when the kid is, say, four years old or above, because we say you should know better. You should know better to cry when we're hungry, there'll be donuts after church. You You should know better than to not take out flood insurance on your house. You should know better than to blank I don't know what your blank is. I got lots of blanks in my head. Wonder if this story isn't trying to remind us that in God's head there aren't blanks. There's need and there's compassion and then there's meeting needs with compassion. Wonder if this story isn't trying to ask us to consider adults with the same criterion of care that we would consider a newborn. And that a need is a need, whether they know better or not, if it's in our power to help, that's what we're called to do. I wonder. I have a hard time with that thought. Because sometimes I give out our blessings in a bag. Has anybody ever taken a blessing in a bag? That's like a lunch. You know, and when people have a sign... When people have a sign that says, you know, hungry, please help, it's really nice to be able to give them the bag. You know, I worry about giving people money. Do you worry about that ever? That's why the bag's great, because it's something. It's a way to say, look, I care about you enough to give you this bag, and I hope it's nourishing for you. And, you know, it's been a really great thing here at St. Thomas and in my life, because when I have those bags, instead of trying not to see those people, I look for them so I can give the bag away, because I've got something to give them that I'm comfortable with, right? Right? I've given bags to people before and they've said, I don't eat Vienna sausages. You know what the J voice in my head says? <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you because we're in church. But it says, <laughs> <laughs> it says something slightly unchristian and uncharitable charitable and frankly very judgmental. Like beggars can't be choosers. Of course, I'll tell you the truth. I don't eat Vienna sausages either. And I wonder if our stories aren't asking us to really think about that. I wonder if our stories aren't really asking us today to think about being offensively generous instead of just being generous. Think how offensive generosity is when it's offered and someone says, I don't like that kind, and you say, okay, I still love you, and maybe, maybe I could give you a choice. Now, I'm not suggesting that you carry nine different types according to people's things. What I am suggesting is, when somebody rejects help that we offer, maybe they just rejected help that we offer. You ever rejected help you were offered? I do it every single day. I do it from a position of wealth. Sometimes I do it from a position of taste, and you know, That's what it means to be a human being, and when people reject our help, isn't it nice to know maybe they didn't need it as bad as we thought? Maybe we can offer them a different kind, the kind that they actually want, instead of the kind we were just happy to give. Maybe the story is telling us that God is not just generous, God is offensively generous. And as my dad once said, my dad's got like seven good quotes, they're really good, (laughs) seven of them. Um, The minute you think you're different from everybody else is the minute you're just like everybody else. I wonder if the gospel isn't there to remind us that we are all children of God. And that as children, we have needs from time to time that we don't know how to meet, regardless of our education. And how fabulous it would be if somebody would just say, they're there. I see you've got a need. I'll do something to help. No matter how polished or polite or erudite or self-sufficient we appear to be, we all have needs. I wonder if God isn't trying to ask us to consider a different kind of generosity, not one that's based on merit or self-aggrandizement, but the kind that's based in parenting and grandparenting and aunting and uncling, where we offer part of our own life and our work for the sake of other people who need it more than we do at that time. I don't know if that's the right read, but I am positive that the Bible says over and over and over again that the harvest is ripe and the workers are few, Won't we join the Lord of the harvest?